everyone, and welcome to the Just Cincinnati podcast, a podcast where each episode we strive to highlight local injustices, amplify the voices of those working for justice, and provide practical ways our listeners can join the work to bring about a more just Cincinnati. I'm Just Kyle Vath. And I'm Just Stephen Byers. Today I talk with Susan Silver and Heidi Nellinger, who are members at Knox Presbyterian Church in the Hyde Park community in Cincinnati. Susan and Heidi are part of a team who is responding to a piece of the church's history that was discovered just a few months back that involved a racist bequest donated over a century ago that no doubt the current membership still benefits from today. Let's jump right into this conversation. Heidi and Susan, thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to talk a little bit about your journeys and your journey together with your church. There's some fascinating history that you have found, and I'm really excited to talk to you all about that. But first, I'd like to start out by learning a little bit about you all and who you are as people and uh, who you are as local Cincinnatians. So maybe Heidi, uh, why don't you start with us uh, with an introduction of yourself and tell us a little bit about your background and maybe what led up to uh, the current day and how, how you got interested in uh, this discussion that we're gonna be having today. Um, sure, um, I am a physical therapist by profession, but uh, do a little barista on the, on the side. Um, I'm a wife and a mother of uh, three adult children, and um, I have been a member of Knox for approximately 30 years, Knox Presbyterian Church in uh, Hyde Park, and um, I've been had many leadership roles in, in Knox and have been a part of many committees um, and been a very active member of that congregation for most of the time that I've uh, been there. Um, I pride myself on a uh, life of being attentive to social issues, um, those close to me and far away. Um, But in the past few years, uh, due to a lot of events, which we'll be talking about coming up, um, the issue of racial justice has come a bit into the forefront of my um, mind and something that um, I have felt empowered to to learn more about and to take action about the racial injustices going on around us. And you grew up here in the Cincinnati area? I did not. I grew up in a small town in eastern Ohio and uh, went to Ohio State University and then moved to Cincinnati and I've been here for about 37 years. So, uh, so really a second home for you for sure. Absolutely. That's great. What about you, Susan? I am an attorney by trade, although I have been retired from my government work for a couple of years now. I did work in city government for a while, and I worked in the county auditor's office for a very long time in a management role, as well as being the kind of legal liaison with the prosecutor's office and others. I I think I became a lawyer because I was interested in social justice. I actually grew up in Cleveland. And there was a major trial that took place that involved black nationalism and a confrontation with police. And my dad, who was a journalist, was going to write a book about this. So he took me to the trial of one of the young men 
who had been indicted for murder actually associated with those events. And it was a fascinating experience. So I did ultimately go to law school and I started out, I think, with my social justice hat on. And then over time, it was almost as if in getting married, raising children, that I lost sight of some of those early goals and started just living day to day to survive, to make it, to be okay with the family and so forth. And then just in recent years, I feel like my eyes have reopened to the need to approach racism and social justice with new eyes, with a new approach, with more vehemence than I did in the past. And I've been with Knox for 30 years. I actually joined exactly when Heidi did, but our experiences there have not been similar. I kind of sat in the corner in the choir loft singing soprano for many, many years and took on absolutely no working roles other than that, which was a commitment and I loved it every minute. But the idea of participating in a different type of role in a leadership role, for example, is very new for me. And the racial justice work that we have been doing as part of the session, as part of what is very much at the forefront in Knox right now has meant the world to me. So let's talk a little bit about that. I think, uh, you know, both of you mentioned in recent years, becoming more interested in, um, in, in racial justice types of issues. So let's start out by talking about what happened at Knox Presbyterian Church, what was discovered that at least one of the things that led you all to thinking and, and talking about this more. It was a couple of years ago that it, a blogger, a local blogger started to talk about ghost stories associated with Cincinnati churches. And one of the stories that he talked about was a Knox story. And I think everyone in the congregation had some vague idea that there was an interesting wrinkle or two associated with history and with the fact that an individual had actually been buried within the walls of the church. However, we didn't know all of the history. As a result of this blog, we looked into it more seriously and discovered that there had been a bequest by an individual to the benefit of Knox Church that required that Knox be a white church. Though there had been some legal adversarial proceedings associated with this bequest, it was pretty clear from Knox records that the church had accepted it without a lot of controversy or discussion or argument, at least on the record, associated with the racist nature of the bequest. So when this information came to our attention as a session a couple of years ago, it caused very, very profound reactions, I think, on the part of almost all of us. And when, when did this bequest happen and how long ago was that? What are we talking about here? It was just about 100 years ago, wow. long, long time ago. And there's nothing in the history of the church that makes it look as if Knox indeed closed doors to people of color. 
but just the fact that this bequest is on the record, that it was accepted, that our church benefited and continues to benefit today from this money is severely problematic for us, for our contents, for our feelings about proceeding as a church. It has made a big difference. It has made a big impact. Tell us a little bit about how you feel that you have benefited from this. You know, is this a pretty sizable amount of money that grew over time and allowed you to to do certain things or how do you, what do you mean it, it actually helped you and you benefited from it? As we understand it, it was a, it was a donation to the building fund for the building of the church that we are now in. And so it's clear that we are still benefiting from that uh, bequest because we are uh, still, uh, reaping the benefits of a beautiful space in a wonderful location um, with lots of amazing ministries. So um, we have, we are still benefiting from that physical structure that that money was donated toward still today. I think it's also important to note that although this came to our attention um, at a certain point in time, a couple of years ago, prior to that um, about 18 months prior to that, we had some uh, church members who attended a national conference in Seattle where the topic was uh, racial justice. Um, And so when they came back um, from that conference, we uh, sort of decided as um, as the leaders in the church decided that we would embark on a journey to dig in a little bit more and learn a bit more about um, systemic racism uh, at that time. So I guess the good news is, is that we were a little ahead of the game in that we had been doing some of that work prior to even learning about the bequest. The bequest sort of got uncovered by this blogger and at the same time we were doing some history to celebrate our 125th anniversary or you know 125th year of our church. So like I said it's it's interesting that we had really begun some of this work um, and doing a lot of adult education and uh, individual learning and group learning um, on the topic of systemic racism. So um, the bequest information, uh, if we were going along on my train analogy in a general Amtrak speed, it sort of thrust us into bullet train speed. Um, with our our efforts and and what we wanted to do from there. Susan, you had said earlier that this elicited a wide range of emotions. Maybe tell us a little bit for both of you what what type of emotions you all had personally and maybe more broadly as a church, what the what the uh, feeling was as a church. I think I felt very mixed. I was almost in a state of personal confusion over it because I knew as a lawyer and as a retired person who had worked in the county auditor's office for heaven's sake, that bequests like this were very common 100 years ago. These covenants that called for exclusiveness, exclusivity, I guess would be the word, were very common and uncomfortably so. 
But the fact that they were and that I knew that and that I'd seen them in many other contexts, when it came up in my own church, in my own fellowship community, it was very hard for me to accept that. And Heidi said it just right. It, it pushed my Amtrak into bullet mode. It meant that I needed to think faster. I needed to understand better. And I needed to get it that there were going to be emotional implications beyond the intellectual, that this was going to be a journey for my heart as well as for my head. And that the fact that I had seen something like this in a different context maybe pointed out to me that I was not or had not up until that moment been really putting the pieces together about how systemic racism is. I mean, clearly every one of these covenants harmed someone and possibly a great many people over the course of decades and, and years and years. And that I was not as a, an American citizen in this century putting that together very well, shame on me. And so, yes, I, I used it as an opportunity to speed myself into gear. And I think there were many other people in similar straits. What about you, Heidi? I, I was probably in the um, shocked category. And looking back, of course, hindsight is twenty twenty. I, I probably wasn't shocked about, you know, that type of bequest at that time. But I think it was just a shock to those of us who love Knox Presbyterian Church for what it is and what it represents today. And that bequest was so far from where I saw us as a church today that it was a disconnect. There was dissonance there for me that I couldn't reconcile. And so, you know, I was very emotional about it. It was a very emotional, visceral reaction. And when I feel that, I feel like I'm always called to do something, to act. Um, and there, at that moment, there wasn't really anything to do. Um, you know, fortunately, there's there are a lot of us who who um, are working together, and so there's a lot of balance of things. But I think that the the reaction to that ranged from shock and complete disbelief to, I mean, I heard many people say. Well, of course that happened. And, you know, that's not who we are today and we don't need to do anything about it. Um, so there were, you know, for as many people as we have at Knock, there were probably that many reactions to the to the news of that bequest. So moving forward, then, after you all heard about this and you've, you had been thinking about these types of things for a while, what what uh, was that bullet train moment uh, or what were some of the, the first couple actions that you all took. Um, I, I know um, you all have somewhat of a committee, I believe, or a task force that is working on these things. Maybe tell me a little bit about uh, how what you started doing from that point forward. In the winter of 2020, we developed a task force. And over time, the task force morphed into what we are now calling the Racial Justice Ministry. And we have embraced many more members of the congregation with each step in the process. But we're still at very, very early stages. We did have a goal setting series of sessions through Zoom because it was during the pandemic year that much of this happened. 
And though we felt at the beginning that it would be awkward to have conversations like this through Zoom rather than face-to-face, we kind of learned how to deal with the technology in uncomfortable and difficult conversations. And we grew closer and very connected as a group during that series of discussions. So I think that was an integral part of, of the starting of our racial justice ministry. And we are only still in very early stages of its development. We have since welcomed some other people into the fold and we are working and Heidi in particular is working on setting up a series of one-on-one sessions between folks who have been through our goal setting training and other members of the congregation. Because our goal is to make this whole concept of racial justice and equity to make it part of the fabric of the church. We are not interested in superficiality. We are not interested in one and done projects. We are not interested in, in a class here or a class there. We want this to be part of us. We want this to be the long range forever plan for Knox. What kind of things have you learned so far? What are, what are the, the questions that have arisen? What are the, the maybe some practical action steps that you've taken or, or maybe uh, some foundational discussions that you've had in the, in the recent couple months? One of the things when we, when we began the racial justice task force, one of the probably most important parts of the, the things that we did as that's very small group is that we engaged diverse community uh, voices. So these uh, are people of color, uh, lots of people in positions of leadership and uh, with lots of vast experience. And we just listened to um, what they advised us to do going forward. Um, you know, we were very interested um, in solving this problem ourselves and not relying on our partners of color to do all the work. But we also needed guidance on what that should look like. Um, and so we we learned so much you know we we've always had the the uh, mantra of listen learn and act and so we have spent um, probably much of our time in these early phases of this racial justice ministry in listening um, because we um, we know that we still need to um, to gather as much information from um, outside of our uh, church community and also within our church community uh, to be able to, to move forward. So we, we have learned a great deal uh, in doing that. Additionally, the goal setters um, activity that Susan talked about, it was four weeks, uh, two hour sessions each week of um, being guided by an outside organization to understand what our purpose was, what our mission was. Uh, so it was, it was really called purpose to practice. So we defined our purpose um, and then we just defined some things that we would put into practice. Uh, so it was very valuable. We spent a lot of time and there were, you know, 27 of us who um, participated in that and, and showed up every every Sunday evening for four weeks to um, really 
take some ownership of what our purpose was and what kind of practices we would have going forward. There is a great video that someone put out about you. I'm not sure if it was your church or uh, an outside organization that did a little story about this that we're talking about. And it was incredibly inspiring. And I'll put the link to it in, in the show notes. But it really got me thinking about my own life, my own church, my own neighborhood, um, and the systems that I have benefited from, the racist systems that I have benefited from. And so, um, you know, I, I'm sure this, this conversation may raise lots of questions for uh, many of our listeners. And so I'm wondering, you know, one of our goals with this podcast is to give some practical examples of things that we can do in our own lives as someone um, who may live in the greater Cincinnati area and also want to investigate their own systems that they are a part of. What would you say to someone who um, is in the greater Cincinnati area and, and interested in kind of starting to explore the, these things and see if their own life has benefited from some racist systems as well? I think it is the case that white people in the greater Cincinnati area need to accept, and everywhere for that matter, need to accept the fact that they have benefited from systemic racism. This is not easy for those of us who, who like to think that we're on the good team, who like to think that we've been doing good work, who like to think we've been always fair. That's great, it's not enough. It's not enough to be kind and good-hearted and not personally discriminating. One needs to do more because the system is rigged. And so what I would suggest as a preliminary step for people is to pay attention to the local news, to goings on in their immediate vicinity. Uh, for example, in recent weeks, there has been an eruption of gun violence. Uh, not that we've ever been immune from it here or anywhere in the US, but there has been a great deal of gun violence in specific neighborhoods in the last several weeks here. And there are young leaders who are looking forward to the city council race and other mechanisms for making their leadership known. And it is entirely possible that there are folks within the greater Cincinnati area who would wish to support those efforts. That's just one way to start to educate oneself about how, whether you're talking about the economics of redlining whether you're talking about covenants and bequests, such as the one that Knox painfully discovered and is dealing with, or whether you find it in other ways. The white privilege exists. It's nothing that we can overlook any longer. We have to accept it and figure out how to solve it. And we can't ask our friends of color, our sisters and brothers of color to solve it for us. We created the problem and I don't mean that we personally created it 400 years ago, but we are benefiting from it today and we need to solve it. Heidi, what, what suggestions do you have? Well, one thing that we didn't really talk about is much of the work that we've done. Um, and, and as Susan alluded to, uh, we don't want to be superficial about this or one and done. We don't want to just host a Juneteenth celebration and then check that box and move on. We don't want to 
do a little bit of volunteer work somewhere at one of our mission partners or elsewhere and check the box and move on. In order for this to become a part of the fabric of our church, it requires that each and every one of us, each and every person in the congregation reflects upon their own story and thinks about the impact of that story and the impact of systemic racism has had in their lives individually. So it's really about to make something stick, it's gotta be about doing the internal work first and foremost. And then that will equip us to then do external work. And that can come in many forms. It doesn't have to be something that comes directly out of our church. An individual may, be, may feel called to do something you know, completely different than what we might be doing within Knox Church. But that focus on the individual work is what has given me personally energy because I'm intimidated by looking at big things that I don't know anything about and I don't know how to do. But what I do know how to do is to reflect on my own life experience, to educate myself. And then the next step is then to turn outward and hear other people's stories. So I think what I would you know, advise people to do is to take a good long look at their life. I mean, I would have been a person who would have definitely said, well, I didn't grow up in a racist house and I, you know, I, I'm, I'm solid, I'm good. Um, but more reflection on just the way I grew up and the environment I grew up in, uh, not my own home, but the, the city, the school, what my exposure was, you know, and it's nobody's fault. It's just the way it is, has really been enlightening for me. So my piece of advice would be to have people to look at their own stories and get in touch with it. And then to listen to other people's stories, whether they are, um, if, if you're a white person, if you're listening to your other white friends' stories, or um, even better is to, um, you know, be proactive and step out of your comfort zone and make a plan to hear some other people's stories, people who don't look like you, people who didn't have the same upbringing as you. Um, because I think, I just think the more informed we are and the more personal connections that we can make, um, the the better we're going to be able to to solve this problem and to make small changes um, as we go out into the world and into our daily lives. I was just going to agree with everything that Heidi just said and maybe put just a bit of an exclamation point on it by saying when one of the congregants of color at Knox Church first said to me, this whole process is about changing hearts. I thought that is way too simplistic. You know what? Everything that I have learned since then, and that was probably 20 months ago, 24 months ago, has borne him out on that. He is absolutely right. And that's that's the point Heidi was making very well as well. It's about building relationships, because the moment you start caring deeply for the people around you, including the people of color, the moment you have more invested in them, your own internal changes start to happen. And that's what equips you then to do the external work and the community work. So Susan alluded to, um, I think you asked a question about what kind of actions we were taking at our church. 
and um, the establishment of a racial justice ministry is a big action. Um, and so now we're looking at how that that trunk of that tree, that's the trunk of the tree and how all the branches branch off from that. And I just wanted to say a little more about the one-on-one -on -one listening sessions that we plan to have with individual individual one-on-one -on -one, uh, meetings with the people in our congregation. Um, because we are a large church, relatively large church, um, we have a lot of people who are on a very big spectrum as far as what the issue of racial justice and what, sh what we should be doing about it. And um, the reason that we're going to have as many of these sessions as we can, a member of the racial justice ministry with a member of the congregation, is to get an idea of where everybody, take the temperature of each person and where they are. Because if we don't do that and we just represent a small group of people who are passionate about uh, this issue, it's not going to stick. It's not going to be able to be sustainable and we're not going to be able to bring everybody along. We're not going to be meeting with people to change their minds or to try to convince them of anything, but really to, to listen to what's important to them. What's their story? What do they care about? Where do they think Knox should be with regard to this topic? And then we can move from there. You know, I, I do love a good train analogy and I, you know, it's a, we have the train sitting on the track and, and it's going to be moving. There's lots of cars on that train. Everybody doesn't have to be in the same car, but the train is gonna move. So we just wanna make sure that we honor where everyone is um, and make sure we keep all of that in mind as we, as we move down our, you know, our journey uh, toward um, you know, doing all we can for, you know, for reconciling uh, systemic racism. Yeah, when I saw your video the the and read the article about this bequest, uh, it's been a while now, um, but it immediately got me thinking about my own life. And uh, one of the things that I did even just last week as I was preparing for this interview was I, I called the recorder's office for the county and asked them if I could find a the original deed for my house, which was built in uh, suburbia on the west side in 1960. And I'm quite fearful <laughs> of what I will see um, because it was a planned community back in 1960. And it, as you said earlier, Susan, this was not uncommon uh, to have land or home deeds that were restricted for whites only. Um, and um, I think that was outlawed, I believe, later on in the 60s, 67 or something like that. But not an uncommon thing in our, our our area. And I only learned that just a few months ago. Um, and so I think that's something that, uh, you know, whether it's the property that we we own or we have a mortgage on or um, the, the church that we go to or the clubs that we're a part of or the professions that we have or the uh, the schools that we have gone to, the, the colleges we've gone to, um, the 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 sports our kids are a part of, whatever it is, there are all types of um, systems at play that may or may not have uh, racist roots. Um, and so thank you so much for sharing the story with us. I, I think it will be, I think it will do much to inspire others in the greater Cincinnati area to figure out how they have been a part of racist systems and maybe how they can at least acknowledge those, learn about them. As you said, listen, learn, and then act uh, and do something small to bring about a more just Cincinnati. 
Heidi and Susan, thank you so much for your time today. I'm inspired by your work. I know you're just beginning. Thank you for your humility and thank you for uh, to knowing that you have some blind spots as, as I do and, and many of us do and yet continuing to do the hard work every day and, uh, and doing it so humbly and gracefully. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, enjoyed our podcast today, we'd so very much appreciate you subscribing, reviewing, and sharing our podcast. This will help more people find us and join the movement. And if you're able to support this podcast and the work we do, please head on over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash justcincinnati. We're grateful for your support in amplifying the voices of those bringing about a more just Cincinnati. Our theme music for Just Cincinnati was generously provided by the internationally renowned but locally based singer and songwriter Kim Taylor. More of her intimate and folksy music can be found on her website at kim-taylor.net or wherever quality music is streamed. Mm-hmm.